Welcome to 4D. Deep dive into degenerative diseases. Gaining insights through casual and amusing clinical conversations. Welcome to 4D, a podcast brought to you by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group. I'm Parm Padgett. I'm a physical therapist, and I am on the podcast team of the DDSIG. I'm here today with Dr. Lisa Brown to discuss the new CPG for use of AFO and FES post-stroke. We are very excited to have her here, and I'm going to let her explain a little bit about herself and her position. Lisa is an assistant professor at Boston University. Welcome, Lisa, and tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi, Parm. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about the CPG. Um, As you stated, I'm also a physical therapist and a clinical assistant professor at Boston University in the um, Doctor of Physical Therapy program. Um, I also, uh, most of my clinical practice is, has been a combination of inpatient rehab, but primarily outpatient. We do have an outpatient clinic on campus where I um, will also see patients one day a week. Great. And so how much of your time is in the clinic? It's one day a week at that clinic. And do you do other stuff too? I'm not currently in any other clinic settings. Um, I will consult um, either in the, um, the BU physical therapy clinic that's on campus. It's primarily ortho, but has um, a concussion program and will often see individuals with different neurological disorders or from the community. Um, but we also have a neuro center on campus, as you're aware of, um, that sees a mix of diagnoses. And so I will consult with um, the therapists up in the neuro center on campus as well. Interesting. Well, we're excited to have you here because we love, you know, talking to uh, people who practice and teach and um, are involved sort of in these kinds of projects like the CPG. So what, what, why were you interested in working on this CPG? So whenever, um, I always look for opportunities that I think, okay, this is a way where I can give back to the profession, um, provide some level of service to the profession, but it's something that is going to complement what I do either in my teaching or clinical practice or both. Um, And this is something where most of my clinical practice, especially before coming to Boston University, was in the rehab setting. And um, part of that included working in the orthotic clinics. Um, So I was very involved in the prescription of um, AFO and FES for individuals with multiple diagnoses. Um, And I felt like this topic, part of what interested me is that um, while it clearly has a very prominent place in clinical care um, and in the rehab of individuals, especially stroke, but in other diagnoses as well, um, it it, uh, has a little bit of a stigma to it almost, right? Where some individuals think, you know, okay, if my background really is in, um, you know, motor learning and motor control, and, you know, this is just a compensatory mechanism, and it might not be appropriate for my patients versus, you know, sometimes you have some camps that, um, 
you know, think that this is a, a critical aspect and has to be put on on um, and used with patients, you know, re- very early on in their rehab process. And I feel like it it sort of straddles both worlds of assisting with recovery, but also providing a level of compensation. And there's a lot of ambiguity there, or at least confusion about, well, well, when do we use it? And if we use it, are we actually promoting recovery with patients or are we holding recovery back? Um, And so I just thought it was a really interesting topic to dive deeper into and to understand and try to help clarify some of that application to clinical practice. Yeah, yeah, super interesting. Good. Well, we'll get to some of those points, I'm sure. Um, One of the things I wanted to ask you, though, was about the group. So how many people are were part of developing the CPG? So we um, initially had five members and how the group was formed was that ANPT actually put a call out. Um, so some of the CPG groups self-form and, um, you know, either get approval uh, from ANPT to move forward with their topic. But many of the CPG groups, the ANPT actually formed. So there was a call for applications um, and what they tried to do is have a variety of people with a mix of researchers, um, some individuals from academia, as well as clinicians. So Lisa, tell me a little bit specifically about the individuals in the group. So the four um, individuals that ended up making the final group that completed the CPG were myself, um, and my back- background is clinical faculty, as well as a clinician. Dr. Therese Johnston, who is a researcher, she was an educator and academic faculty member at Jefferson University in Philadelphia. Sarah Keller is a clinical faculty member at Midwestern University, and Caitlin Denzer-Wheeler is a clinician, and she's at Kessler Rehab. Great. Interesting. Um, Sounds like a nice crew, but also the thing that I was struck by was that it seemed like a lot of work for four people. It was an incredible amount of work for four people. Um, While the four of us um, formed the core group that wrote the paper, there are a lot of layers of support that are in place. So um, each CPG group has to have an advisory board. And so we had an advisory board that included eight members that that um, oversee what we were oversaw what we were doing. So anytime we made any major decisions in terms of formatting or uh, when we narrowed down the topic or the scope of the paper, when we got to the point where we were drafting recommendations, they were there to provide feedback and support. Um, the ANPT also has an evidence-based documents committee that we were partnered with, um, and they also oversaw and provided guidance along the way to what we were doing. So while we were making the final decisions and moving the project forward, there definitely are multiple layers of individuals involved. Um, There also was the appraisal team. So we don't do the actual article appraisals ourselves. Um, The CPG group will do the literature search and we'll do the initial um, you know, title and abstract review. And then when you come down to the final core set of papers that will be included, they are appraised, critically appraised by an outside group um, of individuals as well. And so we actually had 30 individuals that we trained to do the appraisals that did all of the appraisals 
um, for us. All right. Well, that makes me feel a little better because I was thinking, how could you guys even sleep if you had to do all of that work? It was when we dropped, when we lost that fifth person early on, we had asked, not knowing what we were walking into, if we needed to replace that position. And we were told, you know, you should be fine if you feel the need to replace somebody later on, you can do that. But at some certain point, there's, um, while, you know, more hands can make lighter work, there's also too many cooks in the kitchen can just can also complicate things. So yeah. I think the four of us had actually a nice balance um, of strengths that we brought to the group and jobs that we would be responsible for um, in terms of moving the paper forward. But I think in hindsight, if other groups, you know, had recommendations, four was probably on the smaller side. Right. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. So one of the things, um, you know, this is the degenerative diseases special interest group, right? And this um, CPG is specifically for people post-stroke. And I know that you had mm-hmm. a um, very sort of thorough and interesting podcast with the stroke SIG, which Mm -hmm. I encourage people to go and listen to for um, more specifics, maybe related to the CPG. But I was curious, like you didn't start out just looking at stroke, right? What was your, what was you, what were you charged with initially and how did you sort of land on um, this specific CPG? We were, we were given a very broad charge. So um, initially, even the call for the group was just on the topics of orthotics and neuroprosthetics. And we then explored the topics and looked through the literature. And initially, we thought very broad. We were going to include um, stroke, multiple sclerosis. We talked about including spinal cord injury. So diagnoses that really use these devices fairly frequently. Um, But we also wanted to look at the spectrum of outcomes. Um, And the advice that we got very early on was that that was going to be way too broad and that we really needed to fine tune the topic. Knowing what I know now, we um, settled on stroke over any other diagnostic group because that's really where the bulk of the literature is. Mm And, but we wanted to keep the outcomes broad. And so that's where the action statements are across the ICF spectrum. Mm -hmm. And uh, which was intentional in hindsight, we probably could have written one CPG just on stroke and gate speed. And um, that, that would have been a likely would have been a sufficient CPG in and of itself. Mm -hmm. One of the things I love about the CPGs is that like, quick reference for clinicians that has the like one or two page sort of like thing. Right. And it seems like a lot of them are this sort of green light, yellow light, red light thing. Mm -hmm. And, but this CPG is a little bit different in your graphic representation of the recommendations. And um, it has like a body and then it sort of has a circle around it where you talk about different impairment um, or different types of deficits, different types of problems. And 
and then what the recommendations are. So for example, under body structure and function, there's like tone and gait kinematics. And then that's moving, you know, as you move towards activity, you get gait speed and dynamic balance, other types of mobility. And then participation looks more at like walking endurance quality of life. So um, just, I thought that that was a really unique and effective way of communicating that information. Um, and, and again, we know that this is post-stroke, but how in, in your perusal of the literature as you were starting, how applicable do you think this is to people, say, with MS? One of the biggest overall takeaways that we took across outcomes was that the device itself um, it's going to be really difficult for us to ever be prescriptive because the key component that was addressed in a lot of the literature was that the device met the needs of the individual. And that, I think, is going to be universal across diagnostic groups. So you truly have to understand what are the goals of the individual, number one, right? So do they have a goal, for example, to improve gait speed? And so if they have a goal to improve gait speed, then you need to understand what is the best way to apply, um, you know, either AFO or FES and, and the literature to that particular problem. You also need to be able to understand what is it about that individual that is impacting their gait speed. And so I think that is something that we really couldn't in a CPG divide because it's so individual. And that's where your clinical expertise comes in from our, our specializing in, you know, movement and movement analysis and sort of understanding that individual problem. And so I think that that is universal, right, where it really is going to need to meet the needs of the individual. Um, yeah, and the types of AFOs are so are are varied, right? And so you mm -hmm. kind of do need to know what that person has. The even just the extent of somebody's involvement is going to lead you towards one AFO versus another. Um, and so I think I, I can't yeah. imagine how you could, as much as we would love for, you know. Uh, that algorithm that you talked about and like, here's your, a your AFO, like nicely packaged. I just, I don't see how that's even possible. And really what the CPG does is kind of say like, if there's this problem, you should try an AFO. And if there's this kind of problem, you right. should not, or you might, right? For a lot of it, it's kind of like, you may try it and maybe it'll help is the hope, right? So did you, and so did you look at literature related to other diagnoses or did you end up just looking at stroke? So when, before we decided what the final topic would be, we just very broadly looked at um, literature pertaining to stroke, multiple sclerosis and spinal cord injury um, as, and TBI as well. And there's, so there's very little in um, brain injury um, there's more probably in spinal cord injury and, um, you know, some in MS, but the bulk of the literature was in stroke. Mm -hmm. And so um, there were also more um, stronger, larger randomized control trials that we felt could be supported um, or could support the development of CPG. 
so once we then decided that that was the topic, um, our part of our exclusion criteria was any other diagnoses. Okay. Um, did you get a sense from the literature or any of the work here if um, access to like brace clinics made a difference in people's comfort or ability to to get bracing versus you know, just seeing a PT? So that came out of the survey as well, uh, when we asked about um, or tried to get an understanding of barriers um, when using AFO and FES. And so one of the common barriers for an AFO was either access to um, an orthotist that could help provide information about the types of braces and materials and um, you know, joints that could be included. So depending on where people were in the country, they may not even have access to an orthotist, um, access to trial braces. So, um, you know, if you're in a larger rehab institution, many of those institutions have a closet, right, full of trial braces that you can use where, um, you know, some clinicians said they either didn't have any or the only trial brace was a solid AFO. Mm-hmm. Um and so they didn't have um, they didn't have much that they could use um, when it came to FES. They either didn't have access to an FES, weren't comfortable using the technology, um, or you know some facilities have it, so you can use it in an acute care setting. But then there were so many barriers from um, a coverage standpoint that uh, they weren't implementing it or using it. Um, just because they were concerned. And what are your thoughts on FES versus standard bracing? So the distinction between the two is, um, you know, those who are going to respond to FES really is specific to somebody who's having difficulty in swing phase, right? Because the FES devices, at least the ones that we're most familiar with that are you know, stimulating peroneal nerve and you're getting dorsiflexion and swing, they're not providing any type of support in stance phase, right? So that's the most commonly used right now clinically. Um, So it's a very specific problem where it, what we did see in the literature is that individuals who have the ability to have at least some active dorsiflexion, um, you know, it doesn't, distinguish if it's isolated or non-isolated. It just um, noted that responders tended to be individuals who at least had some active dorsiflexion, um, but also individuals who already tended to be able to ambulate at a faster um, gait speed. And so those individuals are going to be more responsive to FES, where if you have um, somebody who doesn't have any active um, dorsiflexion or ambulates at a slower speed, they tend to not respond as well to using an FES. And so at least with um, gait speed and and endurance, we were able to see um, that there was a little bit of a difference between responders and non-responders. And again, this is in stroke. I don't know um, if this has been really defined in a degenerative disease like multiple sclerosis. Mm-hmm. You know, I think um, so. I don't know that that you can necessarily apply that piece to another 
um, you know, to another diagnostic group. Um, but otherwise, if you have an individual who needs some sort of support or stability in stance phase, whether they need either, um, you know, positioning correction or some sort of assistance with stability, they're likely not going to get that with, um, you know, with FES and they may more likely need an AFO. So there was some subtle distinctions that we were able to make to say in your clinical decision-making, you know, if you have a goal of either, um, you know, gait speed or endurance, both can be equally effective, but here is some of the distinguishing factors of who would be a better responder to FES versus, you know, AFO. And it was, you know, faster gait speed and some activation individuals tended to respond better to FES versus, you know, somebody who required more stability was a slower ambulator um, uh, and didn't have any active dorsiflexion tended to respond better Mm -hmm. um, to AFO. And so, and if FES is indicated or, or um, people respond well to it, they're more, Mm -hmm. They prefer, our patients prefer FES. Is that true? Is that that consistent? That was also pretty consistent is that when, um, when uh, individuals would trial both, and that is something that we, we strongly recommend is you're very rarely going to come down to, this is the one perfect device for this person. You're likely going to be able to fine tune it and say, okay, here's this, you know, range of devices that might be appropriate. And then you can trial them with, the person. And so maybe you come down to something like, um, you know, a, a PLS and FES and you trial both. Um, more often, patients really preferred the FES um, type of brace. I, I have one just sort of anecdotal example is um, uh, an individual that comes to our clinic here at BU and helps out with the students and she came in and was trialing different devices and tried the FES and was in tears because she realized that if this was something that, you know, she would consider that she could go back to wearing her own shoes. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, just some of the, you know, aesthetic pieces of it um, were really appealing to her. Yeah. So it, it is interesting that even though it's, it's not covered yet. We're hoping that the CPG um, might help be able to, you know, drive or improve insurance coverage of these types of devices or that we see some changes over time. Yeah. And that's so huge. I mean, you know, trying to make people feel good about themselves when they're in these Mm -hmm. situations is huge. I mean, how many patients have we seen where you know, they're in the chronic phases and you're like, uh, did anybody ever give you a brace? And they're like, oh yeah, it's in my closet, right? Mm-hmm. Like collects dust. I think that's something else that we, that I took away um, and that you'll, you'll take away reading the CPG that I can see applying across diagnostic groups is that even in the stable stages of um, stroke, patients had were able to make really significant and clinically meaningful changes. And so um, there needs to be some sort of dental model applied to this, applied to everything that we do really, right? But to something like this, where you come in 
at least annually for a checkup. And you go through and do your baseline outcome measures and look at gait speed and endurance and um, dynamic balance and overall mobility and say, okay, where are you at? How are, how are things different from a year ago? What What's working and not working for you right now? And what sort of modifications can we make so that, again, this device is meeting the needs of the individual? Right. And as modifications are made, even in that chronic stable stage, people were making clinically meaningful changes, um, you know, in the literature. And so I think that's really important to understand that even in a degenerative disease, it, you have to still have this sort of dental model to see, okay, where is the individual at? And is it meeting their needs, whether they've stayed the same, made improvements or had some type of decline? If the device isn't meeting their needs, they're not getting, you know, that maximum functional capacity out of it. Right, right. And, and what did you find about the question? We brought it up a couple of times. Um, and you'll hear clinicians, I think, be concerned about if I, if we give an AFO, is that limiting somebody's recovery? How the question was asked was a couple of different ways, right? So one, one question that we could answer was, is it going to change the motor activation? Okay, so at least from not looking at it from an activity standpoint, so we'll put that aside for now, but just looking at that motor activation. And so if you look at that action statement, um, what they said about AFOs in general is that if you take somebody's baseline motor activation and they wear a dynamic um, type of AFO, their motor activation stays about the same, right? So it doesn't decline, um, but it doesn't necessarily improve. If you have somebody in a very rigid AFO, that their motor activation will decline, right? So if you're not allowing some type of activation, but if you have a dynamic AFO, you still are going to allow some of that motor activation. With FES, the FES, individuals who wear FES over time, they do see an improvement in motor activation, okay? And so that's just at the level of motor activation. Mm -hmm. There's no, we can't make that next step to, okay, how does that then translate into a functional change? Right. Um, you know, unfortunately, that would be great if then we could make correlations with, okay, well, does the person in the dynamic AFO make the same functional change um, as with the FES? And so in general, they both make very similar changes and we can't necessarily from a functional standpoint. So right. I think if you're looking at improvements from that at the level, the activity level, they both actually make really clinically meaningful improvements. Mm -hmm. And so that's at the end of the day, what is the most important, right? Are they improving their gait speed? And um, are they improving their gait endurance so that they're able to more independently access their home environment and their community? And application of both AFO and FES make those, you know, clinically meaningful changes. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think where how I think of this, and I think the timing of it, if you think of the other CPGs that are... Um, out now, right? So if we look at the locomotor CPG, one of the biggest messages you can take away is that intensity piece, 
right? And so if people are able to participate and engage at a high intensity, they're going to make better recovery, right? So you have a choice and you can think of how you're applying these braces as well in acute as well as in a chronic um, situation. If you have somebody without a device, right? So you have that camp of, I don't want to give this to them because it's a compensatory mechanism and you take it away and they're only able to participate at a very low level. Are you going to be able to hit that, that high level of intensity or higher level of intensity that's going to improve recovery versus if you're giving them using thinking of the FAS or AFO as um, that therapeutic effect, something that is enhancing their ability to participate. Now they can participate at that higher intensity. Is that going to then help to drive recovery? Yeah. And so I think it's, it's that thinking of that big picture and combining it with these other practice guidelines of are we consistently measuring and tracking change over time? Are, what are the modalities that we can use to help the person uh, um, engage at that really high level and high intensity so that we're driving recovery? And are we consistently changing the parameters so that they're doing it, right? Because just like any parameter, if you're working somebody at a high level at a high intensity, they adjust to it, it no longer becomes a high intensity, you're not going to get the same effect. Right. But if so, if you apply one AFO, and it helps somebody to get to a high intensity, and they're making recovery changes, and we're not adjusting the AFO, or the, you know, the FES, as they're, as they're improving, you know, you're, you're, you're going to limit recovery. Does that make sense? Yes, totally. Totally. So uh, along that vein, was there anything in the literature around using AFOs or FES and fatigue or fatigability of muscles? Yeah, one of the action statements, it looks at um, endurance. And um, the primary outcome under that action statement is the six-minute walk test. You often didn't see... um, as many fatigue scales, right? So that might be different if it was somebody say with MS, Um, Mm -hmm. but there were um, levels of just perceived exertion as well as somebody just changes in six minute walk. And there was that immediate effect. So somebody without versus applying either an AFO or FES, did they make significant or clinically meaningful changes in that moment? Both, um, both devices were able to show clinically meaningful changes. And then if it was included either in an intervention or where over time. Mm -hmm. So it, it, um, gait speed and gait endurance were probably the two strongest action statements really closely followed by, um, just overall, you know, mobility and dynamic balance. Mm -hmm. Great. Um, so Lisa, I have one more question for you. And um, before we move on to the more fun stuff of our <laughs> conversation, and that is, I'm curious about if this has changed your practice, having gone through this process, and how? I'm currently not actively in, um, you know, a clinic setting where I'm in, I'm in a brace clinic like I was before. Um, However, I think working with 
working with patients, I think not only this sort of this CPG and this understanding of applying these types of, of modalities is really to think of it as something that's more fluid than I think we think of these devices now. Um, and so I think often it's thought of as this is a one-time thing that you're getting and you're having this, you know, for the rest of your life. And so, um, and, and people don't understand that they should come back if they're having trouble or come back if they've made any significant changes. Um, and so I think really thinking of it as a mode or a means to a, an end that, that it, that can change over time. Um, right. Yeah. I feel like we're a little bit like a broken record talking about the dental model and, you know, checking in with patients every six to 12 months and like, like every podcast <laughs> it comes up. But I think yeah. that, you know, as humans, we change even just normally. And then when we're providing people with interventions that, you know, that needs to change as the human changes. And so whether it's due to a degenerative process or somebody's actually getting better or they're just aging mm -hmm. or, you know, their body's changing for whatever reason, it's important to keep checking in with them. So I think that that, that mm -hmm. is a great message and a great takeaway um, from this. Cause I think you are right. I think when people, you know, prescribe a brace, they just think, well, one and done but it's really kind of not. Or there's, there is this sort of, yes, insurance company is only going to provide a new brace every three to five years, but that's unless there's a significant change in status. And so if you have a good orthotist and you're again, thinking that long-term, you can have, you know, something that is going to go from a more stable to a less stable type of brace or vice versa. It's a little harder to add stability depending on the type of brace, but you can sort of think in that long term and then work with an orthotist who is able to make modifications because people can still come in annually and have their brace modified. So then it is meeting their needs instead of a whole brand new brace. Well, Lisa, this has been so great. It's been so fun to talk about the CPG process and, um, you know, hear these recommendations and kind of think about how to broadly apply them and the process. Um, but one thing we like to do before we let you go is ask you what you like to do when you're not working. Um, so when I am not working, um, I like to run for exercise. So um, I actually just did a half marathon a couple of weeks ago, um, which was a lot of fun. And it was really fun to be back in a race, um, you know, first race I had done in probably a year and a half, yeah. um, if not more. Yep. So that was a lot of fun. Um, and we're a family of runners. So I have two um, boys that are both running in college. And so my other fun part-time job is, you know, driving around and just watching them and cheering them on. Yeah. Super uh, fun. In their, in their meets. Yeah, it is. It's a lot of fun. Yeah. That's exciting. All right. Well, Lisa, would like to thank you so much for being here tonight. And, um, you know, it's fun. We have known each other for a few years. So this is really great to be able to hang out and chat a little bit. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thanks for joining us. This podcast was produced and edited by the ANPT Degenerative Diseases Special Interest Group podcast team. Our team includes Sarah Zoller, 
Katie McGraw, Rebecca Martin, Adriana Carey, and Casey Burris. I am Parm Padgett. Subscribe to our newsletter on the ANPT website, neuropt.org, or check us out on Facebook. And please share this episode with a colleague today. Thanks to Jimmy McKay for providing music. All right, I'm going to do that whole thing again because that was so like, that was a little better. It's easier to hold up the puppy. It's not as easy to hold up the baby, but my dog won't bark, but she will bust open the door.